Are you looking for your next adventure where you can have a meaningful impact? Come explore British Columbia with the help of HealthMatch BC. We're a free health professional recruitment service funded by the government of British Columbia. We're currently recruiting rural physicians of all specialties on behalf of BC's publicly funded health employers. Visit us at healthmatchbc.org slash rural for more information. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. I'm Blair Brigham. And I'm Mojala Mali. This is the CMAJ Podcast. So today, Blair, we're discussing a paper called Cost-Effectiveness of Pharmacogenetic Guide Treatment for Major Depression. Yeah, at first I thought, oh no, an economic analysis, that never sounds so stimulating for uh, for the audio waves. But man, this was really interesting. And, and I guess it's, it's rooted in my experience as a med school on my psychiatry rotation, which I actually loved a lot. But I knew it wasn't for me, you know, like, like I'm an emergency and ICU doctor. I do acute care medicine. So I like instant gratification, right? Like I like to defibrillate people and see their heartbeat restored. So to have to put someone on a medication and then not know if it's working for four weeks, six weeks. And, you know, I, I just couldn't handle that. And what's so interesting about this is we know that for some people, their body just has a different way of processing medications than others. And we've always known that it's almost a grab bag, right? Like just pick an antidepressant, mm-hmm. see if it works. And if it doesn't, try another one. How frustrating that must be. Uh, and so to go ahead and and look at the pharmacogenetics of it, it's actually, I had no idea how much you could predict and titrate and, and make clinical decisions based on these profiles. Uh, it's used already in cancer treatment and in ca- uh, uh, with medical oncologists, uh, but this mm. was the first time that I've seen it used in this uh, scenario. And you know, for me, um, having had loved ones and me myself also, you know, on antidepressants and having to try a few before I found one that worked, this was really interesting to me that this would be such a game changer for people who are suffering with depression uh, and who are having a hard time finding medication that is going to help them with their symptoms. Absolutely. I have so many questions for our guests today. Uh, We're going to be speaking with two of the authors of the study. One is a mathematical modeler and research scientist who sort of crunched the numbers to figure out if this is going to save money. And the second author is a genetic counselor and professor in both psychiatry and medical genetics. So clearly both of these people are smarter than us, Jola. <laughs> I'm a surgeon. No one's smarter than me. Uh, this is really interesting, and I'm looking forward to, dis- to the discussion. Let's get into it. We have two authors of the study joining us. Janine Austin is a professor of psychiatry and medical genetics, and Shazad Ganbarian is a mathematical modeler and research scientist. Both are at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Janine, I want to step back for a minute because I am not a professor of psychiatry or medical genetics. Tell us 
what is pharmacogenetic testing and why is it relevant in the treatment of depression? Well, in the context of psychiatry, choosing a pharmacological treatment that works for a patient is a big clinical problem. So as you all know, if you work in this space, lots of the time when a patient is in need because they are experiencing depression and a medication is prescribed to try and treat that, as much as half of the time, that doesn't the first treatment we prescribe doesn't work. And obviously, if somebody's in a state of psychiatric depression situation, that's not ideal. We want something that works better than that. So pharmacogenomic testing is really about exploiting the idea that genetic variations that we each have influence how we respond to medications. So the idea is that perhaps if a medication is not working for you, it might be because you have genetic variations that mean that you don't metabolize it quite in the same way that other people would. So the idea behind this testing is that if we can test for those variations, then maybe that can help inform um, choice of medication so that people don't have to go through quite as much of this trial and error and the misery of things not working for them. Mm -hmm. So when I hear you describe it that way, I'm thinking back to medical school, like cytochrome P450. Is oh, it like, you got it. Is this That's kind of exactly, what we're talking about? That's exactly what we're talking okay, about. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So some people metabolize drugs more quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they need a higher dose. Is that right? Or That's the, the drug the wears off principle. faster? Yeah, of course, it's never quite that simple and straightforward. We're not talking about single genes or single variations or anything that straightforward. Okay. But that's the general idea. Yeah. So we're talking about not one variation in a gene. Ah. We're talking about multiple variations in genes. And so doing a, a panel test for those, which then provides you like a composite picture or an overall right. idea of how somebody's metabolizing things. Yeah. And then that the results of that pharmacogenetic testing it leads a physician to then to prescribe a different dose. Is that essentially where the clinical benefit well, comes from? So so what happens when you have a pharmacogenomic test done is it won't tell you this bingo, this is the medication that you should take. That is not what it will do okay. in this situation. Okay. What it will do is it will provide a, a list of medications that might be more compatible with the patient's profile and a list of medications that are less compatible. And so these are not things that can be used just without any clinical judgment whatsoever. So that th- that remains really important. Perfect. Um, but yeah, but it so it helps you to choose a medication and to consider dose as well. Yeah. Perfect. So you both have reviewed existing data on pharmacogenetics. What did you have a sense of what the research might show when you were specifically studying medications for depression? So I think when we started this project, as a team, we knew that there were three main possible outcomes of this work. One, we would find that there was a lot of evidence that we should be implementing pharmacogenomic testing in our healthcare system now. Two, that we should absolutely not be implementing pharmacogenomic testing in our healthcare system now. And three, that we just don't know. Really, we should just need more evidence and we can't say one way or the other given the existing state of knowledge. So there there have been some studies, economic analyses, but none of them have been uh, comprehensive enough. So there was there were a couple of economic models. They were not looking into the long-term benefit of pharmacogenomic testing 
they did not have a genetic makeup of the patient as one of the characteristics of the patient in their model. And also they did not have drugs specifically modeled. So that's why there was not enough evidence from economic analysis perspective to provide to the decision makers. And I think probably all of us were kind of assuming that we would end up generating data that supported that third way for that we just didn't have enough data. So that was really what we were all expecting, I think, going into this. And what exactly did you find? Not that. (laughs) (laughs) So what we found is that if pharmacogenomic testing is implemented for patients with moderate to severe major depression, in 20-year time horizon, the healthcare system will save around $1 billion. And it also... Would it be $1 billion? Billion dollar. That's correct. Yeah. And that would also improve the quality of life of the patient and uh, life year. So that would be higher survival for the patient with with depression. So pharmacogenetic testing doesn't sound cheap to me. How does it save money? Yeah, so there is a range uh, for the cost of pharmacogenomic testing. It's between $300 to $2,500. Ouch. Yeah, and so we in our analysis, we use the average cost, which is around $700. So yes, there is upfront cost that the healthcare system should provide to allocate for this type of testing. But over time, what happens is that there will be fewer patients that we call treatment resistant. And these patients are those that are expensive for the healthcare system. They have Mm. higher comorbidity, higher hospitalization rate, higher mortality rate. So having pharmacogenomic testing in place would reduce the number of patients with uh, treatment resistant depression. That's around 37%. So that would cause fewer hospitalization and fewer deaths and overall like cost saving for the healthcare system. Give me a, a, a sense of the scope. How many people in British Columbia live with depression who could benefit from pharmacogenetic testing? Yeah, so around the prevalent rate is around 5%. And in our model, we included those who are eligible for pharmacotherapy. Not everyone chooses pharmacotherapy for treating their depression. So we included those patients, and it's around 200,000 patients. Wow. Wow. It's impressive. What is considered moderate to severe depression? In terms of what is this patient population? How is it different from everybody else who's in the world who has depression? So I think one of the problems that we have when we think about depression is that because we've all had a down day, we think that might be what depression is all about. And it's not. So um, there are actually clinical criteria for depression um, that a person has to meet in order to be diagnosed with this condition. Right. So I myself have lived experience with depression. So I take medication every day because I struggle without it, essentially. So it's really about not just having one day down day every once in a while. It's about being impacted in a significant way that sort of interferes with your ability to live in the, in the way that you would want to. So, so yeah, there's very specific clinical criteria for the depression, for the diagnosis of these kinds of conditions. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess my question was actually not just the diagnosis for depression, but what are we considering moderate to severe depression that would require pharmacogenetic testing? If we were to develop like our criteria for like, okay, which patient should get pharmacogenetic testing? How do we differentiate which patient would be the most benefit for it? 
So the, many of the clinical trials, they use HAMD scoring criteria to score patients. Uh, and then they identify patient, whether it's a mild, it's a moderate or severe. And we use similar approach in our study. So in our study, we know the distribution of severity for major depression in British Columbia, and we assign that to the patient. And in our study, those who get to the category categories of uh, moderate to severe received uh, pharmacogenomic testing. So if 37, a 37% reduction in people who have refractory depression, does that mean that right now, one third of people with refractory depression, like if you just got their dose right to suit their genetic profile, they'd like they'd get better. That seems like a pretty dramatic impact for people's lives. That's correct. So what happens is that when patients get to this condition, then they are very challenging to treat. And by having pharmacogenomic testing in place, that would reduce the number of trial and error the patients are going to, and therefore reduce the number of, that would avoid patients to get to the point that their condition is refractory. Janine, you're ready to jump in. Go for it. Yeah, so I just wanted to make sure that what Shazad is saying is really heard, which is that what our data shows is that by using this kind of testing, we can prevent people from being diagnosed with refractory depression. It, it doesn't mean the same thing as what you were saying, is that it would reverse course for a third of people who have refractory depression. So you got to catch it early. you got to get them on treatment early so that they don't evolve. To... Exactly. Ah, it's okay, about preventing okay. going down that path. And yeah. the imp- I mean, normally when we look at a lot of research on this podcast, we're talking about numbers needed to treat that are nowhere near as optimistic as what you're talking about. So really, like, I don't even care about the billion dollars in savings right now. This sounds like a substantial opportunity. Why hasn't this been done before? So I think the reasons for which this has not been done before. So first, the first thing I think it needs is a sufficient body of literature about outcomes and in order to generate the starting point for the modeling. And I would say that didn't we didn't really have enough of that until relatively recently. I would say the, another reason that it's been hard, f- that, the re- that this hasn't been done before, is because the team required to do this in a meaningful way is incredibly diverse, right? So today you're speaking together with me. I'm a genetic counsellor by clinical training. I um, specialise in psychiatric conditions. Shazad, you've heard about, is is an expert modeller in in the health economics space. Um, And the team includes patient partners, people who treat people with psychiatric conditions in primary care and a psychiatrist, other health economists. Do you know what I mean? The, the, The diversity of disciplines that we needed to bring together in order to effectively look at this question, I think is just it's a bit special. And right. so have you had any responses from, say, government or funders who have said, oh, let's pony up and put this money out on the table? Or is this all something that right now, like if I were on antidepressants and wanted to know why aren't they working so well, would I have to fund this myself out of my own pocket? So it is not currently publicly funded in British Columbia. So patients are paying out of their pocket. Uh, and some insurance company are covering part of that cost. Uh, but yes, so right now it's out of patient's pocket. What happens in the future, it depends on how the government would decide on that. And uh, so we provided the 
the evidence in terms of effectiveness and cost effectiveness. And uh, we are passing that information to the government. Uh, but also we are working on the next step, which is uh, like we are looking, we are going to look at the implementation strategy to see who would be the best person to actually provide pharmacogenomic uh, testing care to patients with major depression. We'll be right back after this short break. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. So we've really focused on the economics of this testing. But beyond the cost savings, what does it actually mean for patients? It means that there will be fewer trial and error uh, process that they have to go through. The frustration that they are experiencing would be much less. The trial and error sounds so frustrating. Yeah, so imagine you go for one medication, it's not working for you, you have to go back to see your physician and get another medication, and it may not work for you again. And during this process, many of them give up, and that's mm. something that we, we heard from our patient partners and people that we, were, that we have been talking to. So that's a very unfortunate situation. Yeah, and remember that in this context, we're not just talking about a medication that doesn't clear up my rash. We're talking about a medication um, that I need because I am too depressed to participate in my life, right? So if you're already in that state, speaking as somebody who's been there, if you're already at the point where you need to go to the doctor to get medication for depression, you're in no condition where you can readily withstand the rigors of going through multiple rounds of medications not working and trying something new. I was one of the lucky ones. So for me, the first medication I tried was one that worked for me. But even then, I have some insight into what people live with because for the first seven days, I had fairly overwhelming insomnia, nausea, vertigo. And so I, I knew because I work in a psychiatry department, I have lots of psychiatrists who are friends. I knew that if I was lucky, that would peter out and I would actually start feeling therapeutic benefit. That I was lucky that happened to me. But if those are the side effects that you're experiencing without any therapeutic benefit over a longer term than seven days, it's intolerable. It's genuinely intolerable. So that's what we're talking about here. That's, I think, why for all of us involved with the study, what we found is so powerful to us because not just because of the money, as we've discussed, it's about the human element of this, what it means for people who live with these conditions. We have done some other analyses that we haven't published yet. And it's from a societal perspective. It mm. includes also how much money the patient and the society would save. And the amount of saving is much higher than the, the one that we reported in this, in this study. A billion is an awful lot. Be? What type of numbers are we talking about? Yeah, it's much higher. I cannot disclose the number we sure. haven't published yet. But <laughs> so to uh, answer your question, so that is the money that's going out of patients' pocket for their treatment. So antidepressants are not fully covered. So patients 
are paying for part of that. Also, uh, the, the, the main driver is the productivity loss. Uh, this patient, they cannot go to work, and therefore that would cause some cost to the society. Oh, that's uh, not part of your billion dollars? That's it's on not. The, oh, that's my God. No, oh, that's right. Wow. That's healthcare that's dollars, right. right? No, the one that we reported is from a public payer perspective. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, it it is a win-win situation, right? They will save money, and then also the patient would benefit uh, from this intervention. Yeah, that's in we call it no-brainer or dominant strategy in health economics. Of course, you have a, a, a phraseology for no-brainer. I love that. Is there anywhere in the world that already does this? Has the UK figured this out? Has Australia figured this out? This seems like it should be on the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> So pharmacogenomic testing is partially covered for some condition like cancer in other healthcare system. Uh, they uh, for HIV treatment, there uh, they UK covered part of that. But uh, to my knowledge, the coverage is not uh, anywhere like publicly funded uh, for depression. Norway has partially covered. But if they are hospitalized, they, they will cover the cost of pharmacogenomic testing. Oh, yeah. Scandinavia is always ahead of us. They've always got it figured out. You've both made a compelling case for both the economic and the clinical effectiveness of doing pharmacogenetic testing with people who are living with major depressive disorder. Have there been any hints of how the government, the BC government, has responded to your research uh, in terms of future healthcare dollars um, expenditure? So actually, we've been working really closely with our Ministry of Health here from the very outset of this study. So the reason that we did the study was because the Ministry of Health was interested in whether this is something that they should consider funding. So we've been working very closely together throughout. And so, yeah, we we obviously, none of us know at this point what's going to happen in the future, but we do have very healthy constructive, good communication, lines of communication. And so, yeah, we will, we will see what happens, I suppose. I just want to clarify, this billion dollars of savings over 20 years, that's just for British Columbia? That's correct. We did our study oh, wow. using the data for British Columbia, the pathway for British Columbia, so that, yeah, that's over 20-year time horizon for BC. But what we don't know yet is, although we know that we there's costs that we can save by implementing this test. We don't yet know how best to implement it in the context of the healthcare system that we have in British Columbia. So our next phase of work that we hope to engage with is to actually study that, to examine the healthcare providers that could potentially be involved in implementing this work and figure out what works best from a variety of different perspectives in the context of the realities of our healthcare system. Got yeah. it. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. It's always nice when we have a real big game changer to chat about. Yay. Janine Austin is a professor of psychiatry and medical genetics at UBC. And Shazad Ganbarian is a mathematical modeler and research scientist also at UBC. Jola, I have so many thoughts about our discussion today. So what are some of the thoughts that you're having, Blair? <laughs> I know you're having just as many. Very kind of you to let me go first. Um, well, of first of all, I just, the impact that this could have on people's lives. Uh, sure, a billion dollars and maybe even more when we look at societal impacts. But 
decrease in people with refractory depression. Uh, it just it blows my mind and it makes me wonder if pharmacogenetic testing can do this for depression. Like where else can we apply pharmacogenetic testing? Like it almost is like the AI question, right? Where AI is going to take over everything and change everything. I wonder if pharmacogenetic testing really has a way larger role to play in an efficient, effective healthcare system than we currently realize. hundred uh, percent. I think that that is part of what we talk about when we talk about precision medicine, knowing that depression is one of the most common chronic illnesses that people have, that this and the impact on people's lives and their productivity and that, that even from that, from the cost savings of that, I think is really important. And, you know, although, you know, from the, from the government point of view, it's an initial cost. And we always think of the initial cost and not the downstream effects of multiple ER visits, uh, multiple visits to the family physician. This, if we do the upfront cost, part of preventative medicine, then the downstream effect is astounding. Yeah, we really are so reactive. This idea of, of nailing it right off the bat or early on in somebody's course of a disease uh, obviously resonates. For sure. And I think part of it is that medicine is slightly rooted in this kind of like old timey, let's just stir this up and see what happens. And um, this is really just saying, you know what, we don't have to do that. We have the ability to predict and to know what is going to work for people uh, when it comes to certain conditions and depression being so common, it would be very powerful. I also wonder how much um, there's this bias sort of towards, you know, the traditional, you know, what an old school person might say is a real disease. Like cardiac catheterization is super expensive. It required giant labs to be built and very expensive wires. And it was implemented relatively quickly and totally changed care for people having STEMIs, for example. But I just wonder if there's sort of less enthusiasm about using other kind of new evolving technologies for mental health problems because of the stigma and sort of low priority mental health often gets in a system that's always competing for dollars. And I would say that I think the other thing that drives the stigma and probably less dollars into pharmacogenetics is the fact that women are more are more twice as likely to be diagnosed with depression. And so there is a lack of funding for diseases and conditions that affect a predominantly cis right. women. Fascinating, yeah. That's it for this episode of the CMAJ podcast. If you like what you heard, please do give us a five-star rating wherever it is you get your podcasts. It goes a long way to helping us spread the word. The CMAJ podcast is produced for CMAJ by Neil Morrison at Podcraft Productions. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mochella Mole. Until next time, be well. Be well.